so it's hey! coming in here. Yeah. I did. <laughs> <laughs> hey, how you doing? Me too, I'm Porto is just like mashed, like yeah. anything mashed. It, do you have mustard involved in some capacity? Is there ginger? Is there chili? Um, so that's like the traditional bit. And then I guess the like fusion cuisine element is like fish fingers. And originally it's definitely your mum's like invention, right? Yeah or, yeah, or like it's kind of like drawn from like the collective Bangla unconscious. You border anything. Yeah. That's the thing. It's that like if you can mash it, it can yeah, be a border. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All you need is belief. <laughs> Forrest DLG, the man behind the music in the show, and myself are at writer and commentator Ash Sarkar's house to learn how to make a fish finger border. The recipe is one that Ash learnt from her mum. When she shared it on Twitter, Nigella Lawson picked it up and featured it as the first dish she made in her show Cook, Eat, Repeat. And with that, the fish finger border blew up. I'd either been at home and got the recipe off my mum or I'd been at home and eaten it mm. um, and I just tweeted about it saying that it was the equivalent of like Proust's tea dipped madeleine like mm. it was just so connected to memory and like mm. being a kid um, and then people were like oh what are you talking about so I just like posted like a bare bones version of the recipe Nice. and then like Nigella was like oh I'm gonna cook it and I was like lol okay and then she was like I cooked it and I was like what the fuck Ash attributes some of the success of the dish down to the nostalgia that people in England hold towards fish fingers or beige food in general but it's also a dish that tells a story I mean it's also like kind of the story of like the immigrant experience in this country which is particularly for the ones that came over like earlier so my grandma when she first came to this country was like 1954 or something like that was like you didn't have the ingredients I mean like these people were eating like cavemen here it was just like unseasoned pebbles and that was it like just like like absolutely just like raw dogging boulders just nothing like and so even for the basic stuff of like garlic it's like garlic is quite hard to get yeah. the idea of like cooking with chopped tomatoes and talk less about like mustard seed or mustard oil so you're you're having constantly in your cooking to like just integrate what you can find and season it, spice it, do something with it in a way which tastes like something that you can have at home. Welcome to The Full English, the podcast that looks at English history and identity through the lens of food. In this episode, we're going to look at how immigration has led to new dishes being made and eaten in England. Do dishes like the fish finger border count as English? To answer this question, first we need to know what a national cuisine is, and importantly, who gets to decide this? I also want to ask whether nationalism, and English nationalism as it exists in our everyday lives, actually receives enough attention from those on the left of politics who claim to be heavily invested in changing our culture. If not, then why? And can we really avoid talking about Englishness today? This is episode 6, The Fish Finger Border. You can make a fairly cast iron case that any national food culture is a myth. This is Jason Edwards, who lectures on food and politics at Birkbeck University. He was talking to me about British food, but the same can be said of English food. There's a famous book on nationalism by Benedict Anderson called Imagined Communities. And Anderson introduces this term... Uh, imagine community, 
nations as imagined communities and says they're imagined because we, we will never meet most of the people in that, that community, but we imagine who they are, what their identity is, and we imagine it through things like, you know, what newspapers they read, what literature they read, what kind of sporting events they go to, what food they eat. Okay. So that's the, the sense in which we imagine our commonality, what we, what we share in common with other members of this, this culture. It's a myth that everybody eats the same thing in the same way at the same time and so on. But myth doesn't necessarily mean false, that it has no basis in, in reality. Myth rather means important uh, ideas, images, narratives about who we are as, as a nation. So it's not the case that English people sit around eating roast beef for dinner every night or fish and chips or, or whatever. But it is the case that there are these important dishes and practices of food, which we imagine in our narratives and images and so on, which do form a sense of, of national food identity. A national food is an image or myth that a community of people share in common. That doesn't mean that they actually all do the thing that the myth suggests, only that they consider a certain trait belongs to a certain group of people who in turn constitute a nation. But what's very important, of course, as well, is that it's a, it's a contested myth. So not everybody agrees about what constitutes British. This is something that's, that's open to contestation uh, and actually open to a lot of, of public contestation and certainly has been in, in recent times. People fight over the myths that denote national identity because these myths say something about who the national community are and how such a community should behave. This is particularly important in contexts in which those with power, such as politicians, want to seek legitimacy or endorsement. Think of the cringy relationship between Hillary Clinton and hot sauce. What's, what's something that you always carry with you? Hot Just... sauce. Really? You... Yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Are you getting information right now? <laughs> hot sauce. Hot sauce wow. in my bag, swag? Hot sauce. Really? Yes. Now listen, yes. I just want you to know. Do all black people in America carry hot sauce in their bag? No. But is hot sauce synonymous with being black? Often yes. It's a culinary myth or idea that Clinton sought to mobilise in order to win support from black voters. And that's why Jonathan Edwards explains that who creates the myth matters. If you think of gastronomy as knowledge of, of what fine food is, or, or authentic national food of any, any kind, it was, you know, it was always the, the gastronome and the formalised gastronomic expertise that, that dictated or said what authentic food was. So, you know, France is the leading example of this, which is interesting. I mean, the British state, so to speak, has never been involved in really in promoting an idea of British national cuisine. But of course, in France, it was um, from the period after the revolution, and really getting going probably quite a bit later than that from the late 19th century onwards. You have the French state sponsoring these ideas of what, you know, classic French cooking is and how it symbolizes, symbolizes France. Uh, and you have before that, of course, the Appellation system in France, uh, which is a uh, first really set out system of legal protections for, for, for food items and food culture. You know, it's the, the knowledge of the gastronome, perhaps supported by official institutional knowledge that determines what authentic national cuisine is. But when we get to the end of the last century, there's a shift, right? So, uh, gastronomy, is no longer seen in those terms. What tends to be elevated is what was traditionally seen as, as the peasant and the low. You know, it's the it's ordinary rustic food. You know, you think of 
I think Lardo is one of the uh, the typical examples, isn't it? You know, Lardo is pig fat, back yeah. fat that's you know salted. You know, who who would want to eat that in a in a fine dining restaurant thirty years ago? But now, of course, everybody's putting it on toast with anchovies, and it's you know, and it's and it's the thing thing to have, and it becomes a bit elevated into this almost you know fine item of of gastronomy in, in itself, even though it's very rustic and very ordinary. So you have this shift in in gear uh, down, if you like, towards the more demotic, the more ordinary. And it's the rediscovering that authentic sort of rustic ordinariness of, of natural food that, that is important. You know, in certain circles, if you, you turn your nose up at a plate of intestines now, then people are down at you, right? So how's, yeah. how's that happened? While our ideas of what constitutes an authentic national cuisine may have focused downward, exactly how and why the restaurant St. John gained widespread recognition for the practice of eating the whole animal, from nose to tail, as they put it, rather than West African or Pakistani migrants in England who never stopped eating in this way, tells us something about the persistence of power inequalities in terms of who gets to define our dominant myths about food. If English or British food is now about eating from nose to tail, one question we should ask is, according to who? While it might be easy to see how our dominant myths or fashions around food can change, who has influence and who doesn't in that process of meaning-making is often far less visible. To explore these issues, I've come to Acro Palace, a restaurant in Hackney, London, where offal is on the menu without much fanfare. I'm here to meet Riaz Phillips. Riaz is the author of Belly Full, a book which documents Caribbean food in the UK. I started by asking Riaz why he wrote the book. I noticed at the time there wasn't much literature about Caribbean food uh, in the UK. There wasn't much media about it. And for me, that's where my family are from. And like the history of that community is like an everyday part of my life. Um, and it just occurred to me how little kind of mainstream knew about that community. So I kind of wanted to do a project that celebrated the community uh, in a fun way that was like engaging. This looks amazing. Thanks so much. Thank you, miss. I think for the major part, if a restaurant or a takeaway spot doesn't tick those new forms of media, if it doesn't appeal to a certain aesthetic or a crowd that it kind of just lives outside that genre of food, almost to the fact where it doesn't exist. Um, so that's the issue I had with a lot of these Caribbean and West African restaurants that I think are amazing. Some of them have been around for about, some of them nearly 40 years, 30 years, 20 years, and had never, never given a review, never been celebrated, never had a picture taken in the local newspaper, certainly not in the national newspapers. And yeah, I just thought that was ironic especially given the fact that, you know, when these new restaurants open with their trendy names and their like trendy celebrity, like Instagram names attached, they get all the reviews out and all the newspaper editors and reviewers and bloggers go there. But for me, the super ironic thing is that a lot of these places are like literally on the same road as some of the places that I featured in Belly for, like across the road or a few doors down. And eventually I'm not one to complain. 
Mm. So I thought instead of like complaining and moaning about it, I'll just do something myself. Open the restaurant review section of any national newspaper, and it's unlikely you'll find anywhere similar to the places that Riaz documents. This tells us something about who has a voice in the making of our national myths and who is marginalised. This kind of problem is also ridiculous because ultimately we all lose out on eating good food with good people. You should try it, please. Again? Yeah, I'm scared to use my hands on. That's not to say there aren't any barriers to embracing unfamiliar food. Like I'm clearly not used to eating with my fingers. In the same way, I remember how my grandparents found it difficult to eat using chopsticks. You just go, if that's the case, then you just gotta make mistakes and learn. Yeah, right. Like, Ghanaian immigrant to England, eating Sunday roast for the first time, they're not gonna know what they're doing, you know? It's, gonna, it's the same, it's no different. It's the exact same thing. It's alien food and you kind of just, you approach it how you think you might that person might pick up the Yorkshire pudding with their hand and just try and jump it and other people would be like, what are you doing? No, you are using a different fork or you watch other people, how they eat. The reason why people get that familiarity to other cuisines is for the things I spoke about before. So they've been shown it so many times, but before they even go there, they feel a familiarity with it, even though they might not have actually ever had it before. Take something like tacos, for instance. Yeah. Those are people who've never eaten it before, but they've heard of it and they're familiar with the culture because it's been illustrated to them so many times through soft media. Now when there's time to eat it, or when they get presented with it, have that kind of openness to it. While most people know what a taco is, even if they haven't tried one, the same isn't the case for Caribbean and African food. As Ria says, that's a product of our media environment. It's a product of who gets the loudest say when it comes to creating shared images or myths around food. I think especially now, there's social media and YouTube when you can go on a restaurant's page before you even go there. I think those kind of excuses are they're dwindling because you can know everything about, well not everything, but you can know a good deal about cuisine and how to approach it before you even go to eat. We're nearing the end of season one of The Full English and this is the part of the show where I ask you to give us a small regular donation so we can make more episodes. If you want to see a second season of this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash full English. You can sign up for as little as £3 a month and with that you'll get access to loads of exclusive content including recipes. <laughs> including recipes related to this show. Go to patreon.com forward slash full English. One myth concerning English food is that we're great culinary borrowers. We might not know, or perhaps don't like, traditional English dishes, but that's okay because we're happy to eat other national foods, from pizza to pakora. In England, this idea is linked to the sense that the country wiped out its own culinary traditions for its rapid industrialization, or otherwise, that at least since empire, we've embraced and adapted culinary traditions beyond our own shores. Yet attempting to define English food in this way can make it everything and nothing. But there's another problem with this idea of England having a clean culinary slate. This is Riaz again. If you look through some of these books that come up by your top chefs, and you flick through them, it's just a pick and mix of different cultures. One page is kimchi, the next page is tacos. They've got plantain in there. 
So if they're, they're happy to promote that, but then when it comes to promoting the people of those originating cultures, well, suddenly it's an issue. Oh, we don't know if we can sell enough books on Nigerian food, or we don't know, like, it's a huge problem. I would never say that people who aren't directly Caribbean can't cook Caribbean food, but it's plainly obvious to see when people from that background are struggling to get their work published or noticed, but another chef can use those same recipes in their books, and there's no issue of that. The publishers don't have any problem with publishing that. So the issue is not that certain people can or can't cook food. Mm. It's the fact that people who are directly from those heritages aren't getting those same exposure opportunities as the other people. Mm. That's the major issue. Yeah. This point helps us think about who has the authority to determine dominant food myths and who doesn't about who gets the credit for cultural exchanges and who is left relatively silent. What Riaz is saying is not an argument against cultural exchange as such, because English food, like any national cuisine, is the product of an interaction between different cultures, because there is no such thing as a pure, untouched national cuisine. Aki and saltfish, typically considered the national dish of Jamaica, is the fusion of West African aki fruit with North Atlantic salted cod, an ingredient that was often given to slaves by European slave owners and traders. The same is true of what we think of as Chinese food. I'm Andrew Wong and I'm chef at restaurant A Wong. You can pick out random facts. You can say that, you know, Sichuanese food is based around chilies predominantly with Sichuan peppercorns. But, you know, chilies didn't arrive in China until the Colombian exchange in the 1600s. You know, at the same time, you can... Um, you could say that China has 14 international borders. It borders 14 countries, ranging from Mong Mongolia to Russia to, you know, to, to India to, to Turkmenistan. You cannot expect uh, the cuisine to be the same when it has that type of um, transferable of culture along those borders. But I think the truth of the matter is China is the original sponge of other people's cultures. Yet somehow, because there's only been a hundred and so odd years of Chinese cuisine outside of China in international uh, countries, I think that people have lost that message along the way. China, through the various Silk Roads over the past several thousand years, has borrowed and adapted and, I, I, I don't want to use the word stolen, but um, absorbed more cultural gastronomies than any other cuisine. You know, whether it be from Persia through the South Silk Road or you're talking about the Ottoman influence from the kind of the Xinjiang route uh, into China, uh, or you talk about taking stuff from the Middle East and India and bringing it back again. You know, China has taken all these ingredients and all these cultural gastronomies and made it part of what we perceive to be a lot of the time is just Chinese cuisine now in a generic form. But actually, they're all very much integrated into being from other cultures. Um, and I think sometimes people forget this. You know, they, they just assume that what they've experienced since their childhood is Chinese cuisine. But that is the very product of fusion over several thousand years. Of course, a similarly global picture can be painted of England and the traditions we call English. We've never been an island story. This is the historian, Catherine Hall. We've always been... It's always been a history of interconnection with continental Europe, with empire, with other empires. 
the idea that globalization is a 20th century phenomenon is, I mean, it's simply, mm. it's absolutely not true. <laughs> Mobility around the globe started uh, almost as soon as there was human settlement. Mm. Uh, and this has been, you know, the waves of different peoples that have come into the United Kingdom and the people from here who've gone out, you know, in very, very significant numbers. This is actually integral to our history. So a history of migration, of emigration and immigration. As dated and as contradictory as it might sound, it's probably better to think of any national cuisine as a kind of fusion food. But not all fusions are created equal. The chicken tikka masala is a dish that's often seen as the peak of this way of thinking about national food. But this fusion food was invented for a white British audience. What Riez has said should make us question why fusion food made for and by immigrant communities in England haven't achieved the same national status. That is, at least until the fish finger bought it. So, fish fingers in the oven is the first bit. Nigella, it's like quite clear that the fish fingers need to be cooked longer than the package. Oh, yeah, 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 because they've got to be crunchy. But that's the thing, is that, like, when I, like, shared the recipe... I think I just said cook the fish fingers, but what I didn't specify is that my mum always fried them. One, it gets crunchy, and then two, it meant that growing up when my mum was making this, she'd like be putting it on like kitchen towel or whatever, and so right. you'd have this like fish finger pyramid, pyramid, so that if you were quick, you could like dart in and get like a sneaky pre-bought-er fish finger. Right. And so that's kind of the way to do it. But then since like, since my channel was like, oven cook them, I was like, yeah, what kind of obscene freak would fry fish fingers? <laughs> While our fish fingers were in the oven and the onions were sweating in a pan, I wanted to know from Ash whether she thinks the fish finger border counts as an English dish. Well, yeah, because also, like, then you've got to start going, like, well, the boundaries of Englishness, like, what, what does it stretch to accommodate? I was born in this country, my mum was born in this country. It's involving fish fingers, which aren't, like, massive in Dhaka. Like... Mm. This it, is profoundly English and it's shaped by the experience of like the Bengali diaspora in this country in a way which is, is profoundly English. And I think that like, this is also why I get really annoyed with the constant litigation, particularly on the left of like, English, not of patriotism. Because it's like, you know that people are going to live their lives outside of this conversation, like just doing what they do. Like if you listen to that AJ Tracy song, Force Nine, where he's like in Trinidad fam, I'm the in English mob, and just like, white air ones in an England top. In Trinidad fam, I'm the English mob. White air ones in an English top. White gal with a big back from Kilburn, bad bitch, see that's the English for. Couple young G's ain't sitting in a band. And I just think like, oh, that's, that, that's just happening. Like, and it's not happening like, because of the left or like, because of what so-and-so's like, written for Navarra or what Paul Embry tweeted. It's just, that's, the way in which diaspora exists and makes a life and, and shapes a place. Mm -hmm. So you think about the relationship of grime or drill to the British state and British history, deeply antagonistic towards those things, but also doesn't exist without like football chanting, like as, as, as well as like the, the culture of like dance hall emceeing or toasting or jungle emceeing. It also needs like football chanting to happen. And then you've also got like, you know, the, the riff by like Big Nasty on like, you know, Baseline Defence League. Base. Defence League. Base. Defence League. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's kind of all in conversation with like, a racist English nationalism and all this is happening at the same time. My float is hard, as a youth lad, life was hard. I needed peace, so I picked up hard. 
As Ash says, this kind of meaning-making around Englishness is happening whether people pay attention to it or not. It's happening in music, and it's happening in people's kitchens. The product of this fusion culture stands in stark contrast to the imaginary of people like Paul Embry, who Ash mentioned, and who sees the consumption of commonly imported food items as elitist snobbery. At the same time, as Ash points out, people on the left of politics are often reluctant to engage with the ideas around national identity, in particular Englishness, even where these ideas already engage people's lives and even when they help determine the outcome of national elections. Those of us who don't think of ourselves as nationalists still have our worldviews, you know, shaped by the lenses of nationalism. And there's a particularly Anglo-British arrogance to thinking that you're footloose, that you don't have a national identity. This is Adam Ramsey, a journalist from Scotland and an editor of the website Open Democracy. Because England was the sort of first of the modern nations, had the first industrial revolution and so on, Every other European nationalism was kind of constructed in comparison to it. So in the same way as often men don't think about our gender in the way that women do, English people don't think about being English in the way that the French understand their French and the Scots understand their Scots and Lithuanians understand their Lithuanian. Um, And so once you don't understand that Englishness is a part of you, you don't see it as nationalism, it's very hard to analyse it. But it's absolutely written through all of our political conversations. So... An example I often give is the media will often determine that a person is or is not prime ministerial. You know, Boris Johnson and David Cameron are both apparently prime ministerial, where Ed Miliband and Jeremy Corbyn were apparently not prime ministerial. Now, you look at the opinion data and Ed Miliband and Jeremy Corbyn agree much more with most British people than did David Cameron or Boris Johnson. Ed Miliband had much more experience in government than either David Cameron or Boris Johnson. If you meet those people, Boris Johnson and David Cameron are not particularly charismatic people. They're not very impressive in any way. So what does it mean to say they're prime ministerial? And, you know, this isn't just something the press say. This is something that is widely believed across a large portion of the country. Um, And what it means is they're posh. You know, they went to eat and they, they have... They exhibit certain kind of personal traits of posh people. And English nationalism tells you posh people ought to be in charge. Um, and so they're prime ministerial. They're like other prime ministers have been, which means they went to Eton. Um, they, they appear to be posh. This is, this is about the class system. It's about the belief that, you know, the ruling class ought to be ruling us. They're good at ruling us. They're competent. I've come to the India Club on the Strand in London to meet Sunder Katwala, Sunder directs the think tank British Future, and I want to know from him whether Englishness is seen by people of different backgrounds as an inclusive identity, because this might be another reason why people on the left of politics avoid engaging with this idea. But to start, I asked Sunder why he brought me here, to the India Club. This sort of dining room feels very uh, untouched, really, over the five decades it's, it's been here. You could imagine somewhere like this being in Bombay or Delhi, as well as in London. So I think we've got a little piece of the jigsaw here. Sundar explained to me that for his dad's generation, British identity was more heavily invested in than Englishness, which was associated with being ethnically white and having a long family lineage in England. Yeah, I think, I think when my, my dad arrives, actually, that's the plane, it's the Whitsun Bank holiday of... 1968, and it's about it's about a week and a half after Enoch Powell has made the Rivers of Blood speech, which is the most infamous speech in a way. It resonates around generations, but it really shaped, um, you know, the 
the, the atmosphere around Britain that that first generation of Commonwealth migrants was arriving into. We must be mad, literally mad as a nation, to be permitting the annual inflow of some 50,000 dependents who are for the most part the material of the future growth of the immigrant descended population. There's a message that says, you know, don't come. You might have got your medical degree and want to be a doctor, but no, you know, no thanks. But what, what it's really about, actually, uh, that speech, it's a, it's, a, it's a rejection of the idea that out of the British Empire, modern Britain will become multi-ethnic because you know, what Enoch Powell is saying is that was all a bit of a mistake the last two centuries. We've gone on a bit of a wander, but we're home now, so kind of go away and stay out. We are we are the untouched, unchanged Tudor England that we you know, that, that we have always imagined ourselves to be after all this global wandering. And yet, of course, the you know, India has been transformed by the British being there for two centuries. Britain is now being transformed by the fact that British Indians have a have a link here, and so there's a there's a fundamental argument about British identity. Who can be British at that point? But by the time I'm a teenager, that's going on. But that's kind of been won as well because the fact actually of being born in this country is you know gives you a sense of standing. Britishness was also seen as more inclusive than Englishness, since people who moved to England from within the empire had been taught by the empire to see themselves as British. British identity had broadened, was broadening, and I think migrants felt strongly British. They had a British passport, they were told about their Britishness. You look at another group, the, the British Black Caribbean population, you know, the Windrush is their symbolic moment of arrival. They come on a boat back to Britain. A lot of them have been in the RAF. They've got a sense, because it's what's been taught in imperial classrooms, about their relationship to this country and they sort of arrive in a London where you know the, the schools in London haven't quite been told the same things as the schools in Jamaica. And British identity proved quite easy to pluralise. Those with a Commonwealth background felt it was their link to why they were here. The story of empire and decolonisation and migration and integration um, made sense but we didn't have a conversation about British, English, Scottish and Welsh identity. I think in England, people tend to think of Britain and England as much the same thing until sort of Euro 96 and devolution 25 years ago makes the English start to realise actually England and Britain are slightly, they're slightly distinct. Uh, the Scots and Welsh have always known that. So we hadn't, my father's generation wouldn't have had a conversation about whether you could be English. Sunders Think Tank have conducted research into the extent to which people perceive Englishness to be an inclusive identity, and whether this has changed over time. It was a view of the young and not the old 15 years ago. Everyone can identify as English if they belong to England versus actually it's a more ethnically defined thing you get from your parents and grandparents. And actually older people have now adopted the view of younger people in the last decade. They've noticed that the norm has shifted and they've gone They've gone with it. This, there's a reciprocal dance going on here. And to some extent, the white English have now moved to say, actually, we need to do the same thing with English as we did with Britishness. And, you know, the image we see in our football team, that's, that's, that's who the flag belongs to. It belongs to people from here who want to belong to it. Match it up with whatever you want to. And ethnic minorities, um, if you're younger, you believe that as well. And if you're older, you're surprised to hear that because you had a different set of set of categories and so um, what what we see in the data is that ethnic minorities think this is very true of the sphere of football in particular but are less clear it's true of the flag 
and of St George's Day and of a pub in November as it is of a you know football stadium in June and so um, that's a, that's a work in progress across groups across generations. If Sunder is right then English identity is increasingly being perceived as inclusive of different ethnicities. Sunder is agreeing with Ash who says that investment in Englishness is already happening. In a sense both Ash and Sunder are saying that those on the political left who claim to be invested in changing culture are actually being left behind by those who are already changing the meanings of Englishness to make it more inclusive. But in the domain of politics, as Adam pointed out, when left-wing politicians don't engage with the ideas of national identity, then right-wing ones will find it easier to define it in less inclusive terms. You have to be quite secure about the passport in your pocket in order to believe that you don't need a national identity and I think I think liberal left people who are sort of beyond national identity have no psychological need for it don't realise actually the level of their security in doing that and so and so you, you're less likely actually to see migrants I think minorities take that post-national view even though they have post-national links so the argument about you know do we do we get do we get internationalism by saying the universal brotherhood of man or do we get internationalism by arguing for an inclusive outward-looking Britain, an inclusive outward-looking Sweden, Germany, France. On the whole, if you want to take a society with you and people are going to run in democratic elections, you actually want the internationalist version of national identity to compete with the other version. Otherwise, you've given all of the flags, anthems and all of the stuff of the last few centuries to your opponents. But there's another reason why left-wing politicians and activists are reluctant to engage with English nationalism. The problem stems from the fact that England is a nation without a state. There is no English parliament, as there is a parliament for Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. That means that England doesn't have political parties that represent England alone. In the non-proportional elections for Westminster, where the party with the most seats takes control of government, Political parties like Labour and the Conservatives want to win seats across England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. If they spoke in the language of Englishness alone, they couldn't do that. But this could also be changing. One of the really striking after-effects of Covid will be that many people in England, but elsewhere too, sort of rather woke up to the fact of devolution during the management of that crisis. And given that a number of the key powers that, that, that were, were important to those governments in relation to public health were held in different parts of the UK. And therefore, Boris Johnson was in many respects really managing England and, you know, developing policy for England. I think that, that was really sort of put in sharp relief. This is Mike Kenny, a professor at Cambridge University. Mike is an expert on the history and causes of the devolution of certain powers from Westminster to Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales. In effect, he says, this devolution has caused the British state, represented by the ministries and parliament at Westminster, to become at times the representative state for England. That's been observable in policies relevant to the pandemic and which have impacted our lives dramatically over the last three years. Mike also says that the absence of distinctly English political institutions can lend English nationalism a resentful character. I mean, there are no English institutions. You know, the, the institutions of, of UK governance are labelled British and the English are ruled by the institutions of the British state and other its public attendant public institutions. And this becomes a sort of feeling of that Englishness is somehow being denied or forbidden 
which I think has become a really important point and has undoubtedly, I think, given Englishness in some context, a sort of, you know, anti-cosmopolitan, anti-London vibe. I mean, I think what, what complicates that is that I think, particularly since the financial and banking crises, I think Englishness does, in some parts of the country, become a kind of almost a sort of um, a language, an idiom that you can use to talk about a sense of feeling really forgotten about and disaffected about the sort of way in which government works. So I think there are different things going on here, but I, I think a really striking feature of the last 15, 20 years is the way in which the language of Englishness becomes, is picked up by those who, who are championing causes against the, the political elite, if you like. But how and why people express their Englishness isn't limited to just that. The degree to which people find meaning in their national identity when it comes to their politics just varies. You know, having done quite a lot of work and including I sort of going around to talk to people and I did various sort of deliberative groups, as we call it now, in different parts of England, I was just struck by the degree to which people are still pretty fluid about their national identity in relation to their other identities. And I mean, I remember I've always been struck by this. I did a workshop in Leicester with mostly ethnic minority. I tried to sort of, you know, sort of replicate the the sort of cultural and ethnic character of the area. And most of the people there said, no, no, I feel the British, not English. That's not for me. And then one point, one of them said, yeah, but my kids are oh, they, they really have started talking about being English and so on. And the room sort of lit up because everyone said, Oh yeah, this is absolutely. And I can't understand it. And I, I just thought that was so interesting that now they were partly talking about a cultural thing about football and so on, but, but it was more than that because I probed them. And I, I, I just think it's really important that, that we remember that, 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 you know, people's feelings of, of nationhood are not fate. They often are part of the materials that people use to make sense of the social and political world they inhabit. Um, and above all, I think, what I think the evidence does suggest is that there is quite a latent appetite for people to hear more of a, of a political, more of the political world being conducted in a register that speaks to them as people who are English in their sense of national identity, as well as people who live in Leicester or you know, are members of their local community. It's just like a sort of level of, of identity and community that is sort of pretty much missing, I think, from the political world. So what has any of this got to do with food? Well, if questions around national identity are not settled, if they are constantly evolving in our everyday lives, and if there are tensions in our political system that means that our national identities are being mobilised, then how and who defines Englishness matters. As this podcast has sought to show, one way we define ourselves is through food. Looking at food can reveal both our national history as well as some of the contemporary fault lines in our society, from who can afford to eat out and where, to who struggles to put food on the table. Our ideas around food indicate, rightly or wrongly, what we see to be posh and elitist, and what by the same token is seen as more popular. But food also shows us an immensity of collaboration, exchange, and the embracing of difference. Insofar as national cuisines can be said to exist at all, they are always, like the nation itself, a product of fusion, of exchange across man-made boundaries, of cultures whose existence exceeds these boundaries but can, by the labour of our imagination, 
be crystallized into something we call national. For this show, I asked almost all the guests I spoke to what they would consider to be a dish that would represent English food today. Answers included roast beef, the English breakfast, roast mutton and an Indian English curry like chicken tikka. But if I had to choose, I'd probably suggest the fish finger porter. Why? Well, first of all, nations are ideas that bound together a group of people who usually share a language and a patch of land. But these things are deeply porous. They are in fact made and traversed by the interactions of those who are not always included within the idea of the nation. And that's especially the case for England. While America is often seen as a nation made by immigrants, England often represses what was a central position within an enormous global empire. I think the Fishfinger Porter recognizes this history. Second, the dish was created by Bangladeshi women looking for a taste of their previous home. And like the chicken tikka, it wasn't intended for a white English audience, but by working with what was to hand, in this case a popular processed food, the fish finger, the dish has become popular with those of different heritages but who occupy the same spaces as people like Ash Sarkar's mum, spaces both geographic and linguistic, but also spaces like supermarkets and neighbourhood shops, school canteens and the front rooms of homes in England at tea time. The dish speaks of English history, but above all, the fish finger porter is just delicious. It's delicious. Yeah, it's fucking good. I think I overcooked the fish fingers, which you'd think is impossible to do. Mm. (laughs) This podcast starts from the principle that the meanings of Englishness is already a lively conversation in our society and that key medium through which we talk about the nature of Englishness, just like any other national identity, is food. In a sense, this show is about crafting Englishness as much as it is about finding it. And that's something I want to do with you. If you have any ideas or views you'd like to share with me, then please get in touch via Twitter or Instagram. You'll find us there at fullengpod. And again, if you want this podcast to continue, please show your support over at patreon.com forward slash fullenglish. There's so many topics we'd love to cover, but we need the money to do that, especially to help us get out of London. Thanks as always to our guests. A special thanks to Jonathan Nunn for his advice and support throughout this series. And thanks, of course, to Forrest DLG, the artist and producer who made the music for this show. I'm Lewis Bassett, and that's it for season one of The Full English. Thanks for listening. <laughs>